Welcome to the Axe and Anvil podcast, a discussion of craft between blacksmith Jordan Goodwin and filmmaker Bo Schultz. Join us as we travel around to talk with skilled craftsmen and learn from their adventures. So I'm here today with Greg Pennington in his shop. Greg is a woodworker extraordinaire, a chair maker, and teaches traditional Windsor chair making. Right. How did you get into chair making and what got you to chair making and where is it taking you and all the good stuff? So. Well, it's, you know, I don't have a real romantic story about how I got into chair making other than the fact that I needed to make some chairs for somebody to sit down. So um, years ago, um, I, of course, I'll, I'll back up. I'll, you know, first of all, I'll say that I've always enjoyed working with my hands. Um, I was a diesel mechanic for 17 years. I built engines. Um, got moved into the kind of the office space part of, you know, the business side of, of the trucking world and just lost interest in that. So um, in 2007, I just walked away from the diesel mechanic field. And if you remember anything about 2007, it was sort of a, you know, the housing bubble burst and nobody had any money to spend for a thousand dollar chair. So I had some time to think about how to build a shop. And so I put together this timber frame shop in 2009, had a old fashioned barn raising and, and built this as um, intending to be a school. Um, so I was, I was born and raised here in Middle Tennessee, you know, 1968, I haven't gone far. I live about six miles from where I was born. And uh, so I got pretty deep roots around here. And um, I was, I've got a, a younger brother and an older sister. Um, you know, there's not too many of us Penningtons around anymore, but um, I don't see any point in, in ever moving. And so I thought establishing a, a school, you know, building it to this degree, it would be worthwhile, you know, having something uh, nice to, to be conducive to woodworking and, and have something that people can come and, and, uh, and learn how to build Windsor chairs. Um, but I know I seem to be skipping around here it's, a bit. No, it's okay. It's, <clears throat> it certainly is a nice environment well, thank to uh, come but and build it, a chair or anything in. <laughs> I guess, you know, as far as, um, you know, as far as woodworking and how I got into that initially, um, I, when my son was born in 99, uh, Logan, we, I had to build all of his baby furniture and things like that and started... Uh, it didn't occur to you to, like, go get it from... I don't know if Ikea was around in the 90s. Yeah, I don't, I don't know y'all, I don't either. I, you know, maybe they were. But, um, yeah, it just it, it didn't take much to push me in the direction of woodworking. It was, um, when I grew up as a kid, me and my grandfather used to, to sit and paint um, watercolor pictures and, and oil paintings. And, you know, I wasn't the normal kid. You know, I wasn't always out, you know, just playing in the dirt, although I had my share of dirt playing too. But, um you know, there, there was always this artistic element around our family and, and my grandfather and him teaching me how to paint and things like that, how to play the guitar. And so it's, you know, just using my hands um, came natural to me. It's, it's, it didn't, didn't help me out through school because they focus on English and math and science. And, and I was always wanting to see the fruits of my labor and do something with my hands. And um, so later in life, you know, I'm now I'm, I'm married. I'm, I, I, have a kid and building furniture for him. And so I started taking some woodworking classes um, at Mark Adams School in Indianapolis. And the one, the first class I took was with Kelly Mailer. Uh, Kelly focused on shaker furniture, the simplicity of, um, you know, the cabinetry and stuff that the shakers did. And he taught me how to cut dovetails, how to match wood grains. Um, and just base, you know, the basic construction of, of all that. And uh, so shortly after that, I had a friend of mine who wanted a set of Windsor chairs. And I didn't even know what a Windsor chair was. I, I had to look it up, you know. You know. And so we, we talked about it. And he said, we should take a class somewhere. And I said, okay. And so I, I found David Wright out of Bria, Kentucky, and taught, took a class from him making a sackback Windsor. And this was in 2003. And by then, I had just fallen in love with the whole process. 
um, you know, that five, I think it was a six-day class, and we turned our own legs, and it was a pretty crude, you know, class that developed into what I just couldn't quit staring at. I, that's all I could think about was chairs. I was hooked, and it, it just fit the bill for everything that I always wanted to do, and so from there, I started, uh, uh, I took a class with Curtis Buchanan at his shop. Curtis was great. He really opened my eyes and fixed a lot of problems I was having. Um, and it, from that point, I started traveling, teaching with Peter Galbert, and I would, you know, be Curtis Buchanan's assistant in a few classes, too, that we taught at Kelly Mailer's school. And that was my real education, you know, teaching with those guys for all those years. It was, um, it was, it was such a wonderful thing to experience. And I, I mean, I was really fortunate during that time because there wasn't a whole lot of YouTube videos and things online that you could go and, and learn even back in 2003. I mean, you got to think how far we've come since then. And so it was, uh, it was such a great experience teaching with these guys, um, not really knowing if I was going to have a woodworking school, but um, it's sort of that's the way it, everything kind of developed. And by 2009, I opened the doors here and started teaching my own classes. And um, it's just been absolutely fantastic. Actually, the guy who wanted that set of Windsor chairs back in 2003 is still waiting on that set of Windsor chairs. Um, <laughs> oh, Troy, okay. I hope that makes have, me feel better. I hope to have those chairs for you soon, buddy. <laughs> but, wow. But it, I, that's the, the front door of my shop is from his house. It, he's the one that remodeled his house and gave me the, the door that's in the front door of the shop. But um, so, yeah, it's just it's it's developed far better than anything that I have could have ever imagined. Um, you know, built, just pretty much building something with four walls and a roof and you just put everything inside it that you love and that you care about. And it's um, it's it's really is conducive, I think, to learning and, and woodworking. And I'm slowly decorating it with things that people build and, and bring to me. And, and uh, it's, just, it's just such a great environment to come to, to work every day, you know, 30 feet from the house. But uh, yeah, the teaching has been fantastic. And the fact that, you know, as, as you probably know, when you, when you have to tell somebody how you do something, you think of better ways to do it. It makes you think um, it through. Yeah, yeah, and the teaching has really, really, um, I think, pushed me forward as a chairmaker far beyond anything I could have done working in a vacuum on my own. So um, I am really grateful for that aspect of it. Um, well, I, you know, and will I keep doing this? I mean, yeah, I don't, I don't, I love the fact that, you know, one one week out of the month I can have people come from all over the United States, all over the world. I mean, I get students from everywhere and everybody has a story they want to tell and they have an experience and then they have ways that they do things and you you learn from them as much as they learn from you and it has been such a pleasure just um, <laughs> see somebody looking through the window there um, it's been such a pleasure just having you know people from all corners of the world come in and share their experiences with you as well yeah and so uh, yeah so now you've been full-time for, for, what, 12 years? Yeah. So, and you're making chairs part, you've been, you've been teaching for 12 years, had mm -hmm. your shop open for 12 years, and you yeah. were making chairs for, what, three, two or three years before that? or? Yeah, I, since 2003, I pretty much hit the ground running with making chairs. And initially I was doing the uh, Tennessee Association of Craft Artists. They have a, a fair twice a year, and I would do that fair. 45,000 people would come through the fair and, you know, see your chairs and you might sell one or two enough just to keep you going, but it was more doing it for fun. Um, you know, after a while, you can build a chair a week, but the house is full of chairs. And what are you going to do with all these chairs? Yeah. <laughs> you have to start selling them. It's just a kind of a natural thing, but it's, it's not something that I think I would want to do and, you know, solely is just make chairs and sell them. It sounds fun, but it's, I don't think it would probably get my son through college, you yeah. know, but, but, uh, it, you know, I, I do look forward to trying some new designs and making chairs, you know, that I could just try and see how they come out and then maybe just selling them, you know, after the fact, instead of taking orders. Yeah. And, uh, that's, that's more towards what I would like to go to. But, um, but the teaching is just, 
you know, I'll, I'll keep doing that as long as people will keep, for some reason, wanting to come here and spend a week of their vacation, you know, with me to learn how to make a chair. But it's, it's, it's more fun than I should probably have. <laughs> you didn't start this out as a living, though. You were... No, um, you know, initially the chair making came about from, you know, the guy ordering the chairs and wanted me to learn how to make the chairs. So I did. And it just became something I enjoyed so much that I couldn't, Almost I couldn't the, focus on being a diesel mechanic anymore. And then, when, <laughs> and then when they moved me into the office and, you know, I started doing more management type work, it just, it became everything that I was against for what I wanted to do for a living. And so um, then it became like, oh, do I, do I take the plunge? Do I, you know, throw that career away? jeopardize losing everything to to do what I love you know love to do and and you know they say that if you do what you love for a living it's you never work a day in your life well that's not exactly true <laughs> there were a lot of days that I had to work really hard and still do but I'm not gonna lie it's it's fun and it's it's not hard to come to work every day you know and but so yeah I mean it's I think of it as a career, I guess, but it's it's pretty much just hanging out with friends and making chairs and and telling silly dad jokes all the time. You know, it's just <laughs> it just seems to it just doesn't almost seem fair. You know, and uh, every new I I can speak as someone who's you know I'm not as serious a woodworker, but I've been been working wood and and sawing lumber on a sawmill my whole life, and mm -hmm. every every fresh log is just like opening a present. Oh yeah, yeah. Everyone's got its own. It's character. so addictive to uh, to start sawing. Logs sawing or and, splitting. But then you realize you have to stack those that lumber. Right. And then eventually, <laughs> when it's dry, you have to do something else with it. So, um, but yeah, it's the, the sawmill part of the business um, that kind of came about from uh, in 2002. I bought this old rickety sawmill from a friend of mine, and we had it sitting up here by the barn near the house and when we built in 2003, we moved out here. And uh, I fought with that sawmill, and, but it pretty much sawed every board that's wrapped around this building. And, um, but then in 2006, we had a tornado come across the front of the yard and then over a bunch of creeks and knocked down a bunch of trees and timber. And so I went and bought a brand new 2006 model Woodmiser. Just drove up to Indianapolis and, and brought it back. And it wasn't, it was a mechanical, I mean, it, you know, it was electric feed, it wasn't, fully hydraulic or anything. Um, but that's that sawmill pretty much sawed everything you see wrapped around us here, including the floor of these benches, the timber frame itself. Um, everything came off of that sawmill. So, um, you know, I've got visions of each one of these posts and beams standing in the woods and cutting those trees down. And um, such, such a great experience, but something I think that the younger people need to enjoy. Um, at this age, I don't know that I'd want to go through all that again. Yeah. <laughs> um, I have since now gotten rid of the old wood miser and got a, a Timber King, which is a fully hydraulic version. And I don't saw near as much as I used to, um, but it's, it's, a, it's still a fun thing to do to see what's in that log and try to see, you know, like, oh, is there going to be figure here? Or, you know, as from a chairmaker's standpoint, I want really boring, straight grain, non-twisting logs. That's what chairmakers, you know, seek out to, to use with the draw knife and spokeshaves and hand tools. But every once in a while you get a figured piece or something and, you know, you just stack those, let them dry and sell them to the, to the cabinet makers and things of that. Yeah. So your bread and butter is making these, these beautiful Windsor chairs mm -hmm. uh, or teaching other people how to make them. Right. Uh, for those that don't know what a Windsor chair is or how one is made. Um, can you walk us through the process? Yeah, definitely. Um, you know, the, a Windsor chair is defined as any chair that anchors the legs and the back. Everything's anchored into the seat. So it, the, the seat separates the undercarriage from the upper carriage. Um, so anything like that is defined as a Windsor chair. A solid wooden um, seat as opposed to as a opposed frame to that's, a ladder that has back. a woven seat or yeah, something. Yeah, where like, the yeah. back leg is the back of the chair or you know, any, you know, ball and claw type chairs, whatever those are called. Um, so yeah, typically um, I seek out these 
really straight grain white oak logs first and foremost. Um, stuff that I can split and rive into chair pieces that become the backs of the chairs, the spindles of the chairs. Um, I go up to a little log yard up in Kentucky. It's about 45 miles north of here. Um, Woodstock Mills, great place. Father and son own it. Um, they sell a lot of stave logs for, to the whiskey barrel makers, um, which are white oak. And that's, that's their bread and butter. And so they lay these logs out and I get to choose, you know, a couple that I can bring home. And I can get eight or ten chairs out of one log. So typically um, I can bring the log back. I'll split it up into, um, into ha in, in half because you always want to split what you're splitting in equal pieces. So the split will run straight down the log. So I'll split it in half and then those halves in half, eighths, you know, and break them down pretty much with a, uh, a splitting maul and a wedge to like they're small enough where I can bring them into the shop to uh, use the fro and mallet, which is a controlled way to split the, the wood. By pulling the handle a certain direction, you can control the split and how it runs through the log. And then I'll break down the parts to where I bring those into the shop to get, um, to use the draw knife and the shave horse. You know, the shave horse is basically the chairmaker's workbench that holds the piece um, by pressing down with your feet, you can hold the wood and use the draw knife to shave the part, um, which gives you good control using both hands. And you kind of complete this triangle with your feet through the shave horse and then your hands and the, you know, the piece of wood. So you have really good control. You can reclamp the piece really quickly with the shave horse. And um, it's just an invaluable tool for what, what I do. And um, so from that point, you know, I, I work the green wood first. Um, the spindles, steam bin the back. The steaming process is typically an hour per inch. You steam the wood, you bend it around a form, and then three or four days later, that piece is dry enough to come off and then finish building the chair. So while the green wood parts are drying on the forms and your spindles are drying in the kiln, there's a little light bulb kiln, um, I start shaping the seat. The seat is the only dry part of the chair that I start with. Um, it's air-dried white pine I get from a place uh, up in Escanaba, Michigan. Uh, Dan Karen, great guy up there. He saws these 21-inch wide boards, some of which are 16 feet long and don't have a knot from one end to the other. Wow. So, yeah, it's amazing stuff. And the, and the pine up there grows so slow, and the, and the growth rings are super tight, and it carves like soap, which around here in Middle Tennessee, the, uh, the pine grows so fast. You can have one inch of growth per year on the growth ring and it, it just has no integrity. It carves like styrofoam. You know, you're, you, you just can't get the tools sharp enough to carve the stuff around here. Plus the fact that it, it just oozes this resin out of it, which is so messy. But, so that's the only source of material that I have to go so far, you know, almost to Canada to get, to get the best. But we do have good woods to carve around here, whether, you know, be poplar, which is a little tougher to carve. And one that I've been using a lot lately is sassafras. It's one of my favorite, um, and it paints great. It smells amazing when you're carving it. So, um, so while the green wood's drying, I'm carving the seat. I'm drilling all my compound angled holes, and I'm reaming those. Um, usually at that point, I already have the leg turnings done, um, which there, it's got a six degree tapered tenon on the leg that's reamed into the seat. And I've got a reamer that matches the, you know, the tenon. And um, so you ream your legs in place, you take measurements for the stretchers, you turn the stretchers to length. Um, and then at that point, later in the week, I'm uh, pulling all the stuff off the forms and out of the kiln and drilling all the holes in those parts and putting the chair together, essentially on like day four or five. And it's the same, what I do here in my own shop is the exact same thing I teach to the students when they come here. Um, there's, the, the biggest thing, that to, the students don't get to turn because turning in itself could take weeks to teach. It's just, it's not an intuitive thing that people can do if they've never done it. And it, they would focus so much on just turning that they would, I don't think they could digest the whole process of chair making in a week also having to turn. And it's, it's um, 
I know Peter Galbert has said it's like drinking from a fire hose. There's just so much information coming at you during that week, you just can't possibly yeah. grasp it all. So it's, it's, um, it's pretty intense. So I try to take some of that pain away and build their confidence and give them things that I know that they can complete in five days without totally wearing them out. And it seems to work. Now, turning is something we go over and I can do demos on it. And then they can go home and, and you know, complete that on their own. You know, practice makes perfect and turning is one of those things that you just have to keep doing over and over and over again. So, but a lot of the skills that we focus on here in class are just how to hold a spokeshave. You know, how to hold a draw knife and is it bevel up or bevel down? You know, skew and slice makes everything nice. That's one of my, uh, one of my t-shirts I guess I'll never have made, but um, <laughs> we sand what we don't understand. You know, that's another, that's another one that the old sanders get. I love know, it. Um, I turn you from a square maker to a chair maker, you know. <laughs> anyway, it's enough of those. But uh, basically it's, um, you know, you just learn basic hand tool skills and how to skew a blade and hold the blade, you know, tilt it forward to bring the blade out of the cut a little bit so you can adjust the depth of cut on the fly. I mean, it's, it's just those simple little aha moments that I see, um, you know, students achieve during a week that's so much fun. And um, uh, it's, it's, it's been pretty, pretty rewarding. So. Why do you have so much respect for the grain of the wood? Well, the grain of the wood has to be followed. Um, for one thing, hand tools won't ignore grain. They follow it. That's what they do. That's what the draw knife does. It's, it, it excels at it. And so, you know, you, I have this, another one of these silly sayings, um, you know, follow the grain or go insane. Um, you just, if, when you split the wood out and think, think of it as when you make spindles in a chair that each little spindle is its own tree. You know, a, the reason a tree stands in the woods and handles all these storms is because it follows its own grain. It's just like a giant spindle planted in the ground, if you can imagine. So each one of your spindles in your chair are little trees, and it has such flexibility. And it's that delicacy that gives it its strength. I know that doesn't make sense, but if, if you, when you sit in these chairs, it flexes with your body, kind of moves with you. If it was a real rigid chair with big, thick parts, and those parts didn't follow the grain, then it would fail. Not necessarily the part itself, but the joinery that it holds together. It can't flex, and it would tax those joints, and it would probably fail. Um, pretty evident in a lot of factory-made furniture. So, um, yeah, follow the grain. That's, that's, that's the whole premise behind a handmade Windsor, is following the grain. Using that inherent strength of the tree in your chair. And thus, you end up with an 8-pound chair that can hold a 250-pound person. You know, it's, it's, um, it's an amazing uh, engineering feat, I think, that, you know, two or 300 years ago, they had it figured out. And uh, so I'm trying real hard not to go down like a theology rabbit trail <laughs> all along this concept. Yeah. But I mean, it's, it's, it's amazing. I mean, you look at these, these chairs right. and following the grain, mm -hmm. you get such an elegant result and there's there's actually quite a bit of freedom and flexibility within those parameters of following right. the grain exactly you don't have to chop wood up and glue it back together mm -hmm. to get a beautiful long-lasting result you know yeah durability yeah. and all the good stuff yeah i think the fact that if you you know if you built a chair out of laminated wood that you glue together which is fine there's many chairs that are made that way but you can't go cut a tree down in the woods or buy a log and five days later have a finished chair. It just, you can't do Good that. Point. Yeah. You know, you'd have to kiln dry the wood and then you'd have to surface every board. And you know, you, there's this disconnect from you and the, and the material by adding all these machines in between. And with the Windsor chair, I mean, there's just, that's, that's as close as it gets. You know, if, if I could sharpen my fingernails enough, I could make this chair, but I mean, you know, that's kind of weird, but don't. <laughs> but I mean, you know, the only thing in between you and, and that chair are just are a spokeshave, a draw knife, you know, some riving tools, a scorp. Scorp is a curved draw knife that carves out the seats, and 
you know, one thing that you just you can't really portray in a in a video is, but is the smells of the, you know, the of the white oak and the and the uh, the the pine seats and the sassafras seats. It's it's just an you know it it alivens all your senses. You know, yeah. it, it and it takes the very best of you to to complete, but it's so satisfying. Yeah. And it's something that, you know, when you're when you get this excited about something, you know. However long that's been, 17 years ago when I made my first year, um, I always thought, man, I'm going to be so disappointed when the new wears off of this and I don't want to do it anymore. And that never happened, you know. I'm just as excited today as I was back then, you know, to come out to the shop and, and whittle out nine spindles for a, you know, continuous armchair. And uh, I, I, I realize now that that new is never going to wear off. Yeah. So. Is... Part of that, I think, just from a little bit of hand tool woodworking I've done, is um, it's just as easy as it is to use a draw knife. Mm -hmm. um, it takes a lot of concentration to follow the grain. Yes. And to avoid, you know, tearing out or, you know, really going well, off in the wrong direction, whatever. Not, not, and, not to use too many sayings again, but if it tears out, turn about. You just, you go the other direction. Yeah. And it's, you know, it's basically with hand tools. So and, and so it's like every cut is, mm -hmm. it's not enough of a challenge to be an aggravating after you've gotten the hang of it. Yeah. But it is enough of a challenge to keep you engaged. Yeah. And that's just, that's just flat enjoyable to use sharp maybe, tools. <laughs> maybe it's just an adrenaline rush or yeah. something, you know, yeah. it's that, it's that ever so often you might destroy this piece that you're working on because it's only three eighths of an inch thick, you know, and yeah. you've got to. You're using this raw blade just coming, you know, powering down through it. And, yes, it happens sometimes. But at least when you make those mistakes, you know the limits. And, right. you know, the next time you're maybe a little better. You know, you skew and slice a little more or something. I don't know. It just, <laughs> learning to sharpen just opens up this, a world, holy world yeah, for me anyway. And I'm still, I'm still figuring it out. But Yeah, I think we're, you know, in chair making it's, it's all about how good the material is, is how easy the chair will be to make. But it also has to do with how sharp you can get the tools. So I'm always trying to, you know, chase that burr on that edge and trying to get the very sharpest tool I can when it's necessary. You know, you can cheat it a little bit in green wood with white oak. Um, the tool doesn't have to be absolutely perfect and it'll shave green wood beautifully. But when you get into carving seats, especially the white pine because you don't have a lot of integrity in the white pine, the feedback from the tool. Um, I mean, it's, it's kind of like carving. You can imagine if you had to slice cardboard, you would need a really sharp tool to do that. Um, whereas if you're carving butternut or something, you know, it's, you, get, you just get better feedback from the material. But uh, yeah, sharp tools and good material equal success in chair making and fun. And it's um, something I try to provide for the students is, is the best material that I can come up with. I don't want yeah. them fighting material all week long. And, um, you know, it's, it, it's happened. I mean, it, you know, you don't always know exactly what the wood, how what it's going to be and what it's going to behave. When I mean, that log opens and, up. But you better believe, you better know that the wood, the white oak, is going to steam bend and take a good bend before you subject that to all your students. Um, I've, I've heard stories before, I won't mention any names, but I've heard stories where people have taken, you know, taught classes off-site and every piece failed. You know, the wood just oh, would not man. bend. And at that point, I don't even know what you would do. But, so, you know, it's, it, that's the joy of teaching here at my shop. I can control that a lot more. Whereas in the old days, I say the old days, but back when I used to travel with Peter Galbert and Curtis Buchanan, we would, I would prepare all the materials and bring with me. So there was a lot riding on me that this stuff better work. Yeah, yeah. And um, so there were times when materials got a little thin, you know, they got, but ran out uh, because it's such a specialized kind of craft that you have, you know, you have to have the right materials for what, uh, you know, what you're doing. But that's what's nice here is I can control that and uh, give everybody the best materials that the same stuff I would be using on my own and, and give them that same experience. You were, you were talking earlier about how simple the tools are mm -hmm. to make a chair and I was, I was trying to think um, 
it's literally possible to fit the tools to make a Windsor chair into like a five gallon bucket. Because you can tech, isn't it? You can technically, yeah. you can technically, you don't have to have lathe turned parts. You right, can yeah. whittle all those parts out with the draw knife. Yeah, that totally. And, um, I mean, you know, Curtis Buchanan did it best with his Democratic chair where it's based, you know, the most basic tools that you could possibly use, you know, a scorp, a draw knife, a hammer, a bit brace, and you rive out your legs and you shave them into octagons and then, you know, you can go round if you want to with a spoke shave. Um, but it's, yeah, you, you can totally build, you know, chairs like that um, with nothing but just a few hand tools. And, you know, he, I think he developed that chair when he used to go to South America and try to give something for the locals to um, develop a, uh, uh, a re, you know, use their resources to develop an economy down there with some few simple hand tools instead of just logging the forest and, you know, selling off all their material. And it kind of gave them something that they could do with just the most simple hand tools. So, so you don't need a big space. You, you can build, you can build chairs in your kitchen. You know, I mean, you can do it just about anywhere. You don't even have to have a shave horse if you don't want to. You can use a vise on a bench. It's not as easy, but uh, shave horses aren't that hard to build. And um, so it's, you know, I mean, you can put any amount of money, I guess, in any amount of tools to, to get into a craft, but chair making really doesn't have to be that expensive. You know, you can get a $20 draw knife at a flea market. You can, you can drill a hole with just about anything. And um, you can make a reamer from a keyhole saw blade or, um, you know, a fro mallet is nothing more than a stick of wood, that, you know, has, you know, you just beat up with a fro and a fro can be, you can find those at, you know, flea markets and things too. The, uh, but the beauty of this and teaching this, um, I have learned about a lot of good tool makers um, and, you know, got to maybe work with a few of them to help develop certain tools. And it's, it's fun to, to support those guys too and, 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 the, and the tools that they make. I, for one, appreciate it. Yep. Yep. <laughs> the you were who I was talking about. <laughs> feedback, feedback from somebody who just knows their tools yeah. intimately and what they're capable of and all like that. It's just, it's invaluable to yeah. a tool maker. Yeah, I've always thought it funny that you would go to Home Depot or Lowe's to try to find tools to make a chair. You just can't. I mean, there's so much disconnect between the tool maker. You know, and they're, the they're in it to make money, not to make quality parts. I mean, you know, I... I you probably could make it work to some degree, but um, yeah, you're not going to find a draw knife at you know the big box stores. Or um, if you did, it probably wouldn't be a good one. <laughs> yeah, I can't imagine. Uh, you know, but it's Woodcraft might have some usable ones. Yeah, but. yeah. But uh, yeah, so there's there's a lot of good individual tool makers out there that I'm happy to support, and you know, a lot of the people that come here to take a class, um, you know, they're. They're retired professionals, some still working. Well, actually, a lot of them still work. I'm getting a lot of younger students now, but most of these people have the means to buy, you know, the really expensive tools. It's, you know, me and Peter used to always joke, Peter Galbert, and say that you, you can always tell who the chair instructor was. He had the poorest tools. <laughs> you know, the students always had better tools. Right. But, um, so there's, but there's a lot of good makers out there, um, you know, developing really good, high-quality tools that, will last a lifetime, you know, and it's, it's, it's fun to see that, that uh, happening. So do you wish you had gotten into chair making sooner? Or, or do you think that your, your 17 years in a, in a prior career have led you to, um, to appreciate <laughs> chair yeah, making more? I mean, that's, that's tough. I mean, it's, yeah, that's, it's tough to go back. I mean, we can't really change our past. But, you know, I think the skill set that I had as a diesel mechanic in some weird way helps me work on the woodworking machines and things in this shop. But yeah, I mean, I, I wish I had, as, as fun as this is and much as I enjoy this, yeah, I would love to have been six years old and my father taught me chair making or something. That would be fantastic. And, you know, I get to convey this into Logan too, you know, is my son who um, has made a few chairs and he, he understands what all the tools do and he's got that with him, you know, for down the road when he wants to get more into it. And so, yeah, but I, when I'm teaching and I see these young students come through, and by young, I mean in their mid-20s, and they're just so passionate about this. And all I can think is, wow, I wish I was in my mid-20s when I learned what they're learning this week. You yeah. know, it's, it's pretty fascinating to, 
to, to realize you get to have that sometimes life-changing impact on people that come through the doors here. Yeah. And um, so, yeah, I would, I, I'm just thankful that I learned it when I did. I was, I don't know, 40s, in my 40s, I guess, when I learned. Or, thir no, I guess I was in my upper 30s. I don't know how old I was. I can't do math. That's why I make <laughs> chairs. But um, so it's, it's yeah, it's, it's a fascinating um, thing to think about, you know, kind of starting earlier, I guess. Kind of related to that, and this is this is what I wanted to ask earlier and, and uh, completely forgot, but it's just, um, you know, one thing I really appreciated when I came and made a chair here was how how free and open you were with your, your information and teaching all the tips and tricks. And I'm, obviously, as a teacher, like, you kind of have to do that. But, mm -hmm. um, but you know, you, you encouraged me during that class to think about, you know, that making chairs was a legitimate, um, like, that, that's, a, that's actually a legitimate option um, for something to do for a, a side hustle or a or a business or whatever yeah, you yeah, know I mean, and to take it to take it seriously that way and mm -hmm. you know you offered you 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 told me I could easily sell my first chair as you did yeah you know so my question is like you know um, what kind of advice would you give to a person young or young or not that was seriously looking at um, you know some sort of handicraft um, um, yeah, it's as a, good, a vocation. Good question. Um, I think as far as, you know, chair making or any craft really, I mean, you know, absorb yourself in it, but don't work in a vacuum, you know, seek out the, you know, the help from other teachers and other people, um, you know, get into woodworking shows or craft shows or whatever, just try to sell your work once you get into it. Um, but also share what you know. I think people are always passionate about, I mean, things that they're passionate about, they want to tell you about it, you know, they mm -hmm. get excited about it. And things that were shared to me in that respect made the biggest impact on me. You know, Curtis freely sharing all of his chair plans, you know, with me early on. Curtis sharing with me from um, Dave Sawyer out of Vermont, who he learned to make chairs from. You know, Dave freely shared his plans with Curtis, and then Curtis, in, you know, in return does that with everybody he teaches. and. I've always liked that aspect of it instead of trying to covet everything that I design or make and, and not share it unless you're paying me. I just don't, I don't feel like that's an appropriate way for the world to turn. Right? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, um, I get so much more enjoyment in just sharing this information that I'm passionate about. And um, so I think, you know, the young people get into it. If, you know, by all means, if you want to be a chair maker, go for it. You know, there's, there's room for everybody. You know, there's, there's no competition in this, you know. It's, I mean, there's, there's many places you can sit down a whole lot cheaper, <laughs> a lot easier. <laughs> but, um, yeah, it's just, you just got to, I guess, look at how, you know, why, why you make, why do you make a handmade chair? Right. You know, and it's, it's because it's something you enjoy to do, and you want to make something that's going to last many lifetimes. And uh, there's plenty of room you know, for everybody to be involved that wants to do it. I think that's one of the, <clears throat> one of the real um, benefits to the, the technology, technological advance, whatever, mm -hmm. and, and communication, you know, social media for all of its, or the internet for all of its drawbacks. Yeah. One of the, the <clears throat> real advantages that we're seeing is, is just how that's, that's enabled not only people craftspeople to connect yeah but also it's enabling people to um to make a living yeah um with their craft because they can um they can differentiate themselves and a, and a lot of a lot of customers that are buying handmade chairs or in my case you know handmade ironwork they're not just buying it for the item right they're buying it for the story, yeah, you know, and they're buying it. They want a chair from Greg Pennington or whatever, mm -hmm. and um, and so that that to me has really really contributed to um, the uh, as you said. I loved your you know. There's no competition, yeah, and um, there's plenty of room for 
room for everybody. Yeah. It doesn't, and I think that that definitely people. contributes to it. Yeah. Yeah, it's just like when, when my students come through the door, you got all these different professions and people have these life experiences and they come together and we all have this common denominator that we want to make a handmade chair. And it's not because they need a place to sit down at home. Um, it's just, you know, it's just, a, it's just a neat, really cool environment to be involved with. How many hours do you have in a chair? Hours in a chair. How long does it take to make a chair? Um, it varies per chair, obviously, but you know, you can make a chair in 20 to 30 hours on average. Um, the painting of the chair takes quite a bit of time. Uh, it's, it's a grueling process with the milk paint, you know, to, to mix milk paint and to do layer after layer, rub through, you know, with a lot of elbow grease on each layer of paint. But uh, probably the painting is my least favorite aspect of chair making, although it's, you know, it's where, uh, it's what everybody sees. So you, you can't, can't really cheat that process, so. And obviously chairs don't have to be painted Right, you're right. sitting in an unpainted one, but the the rubbed through milk paint, rubbed through and layered mm -hmm. milk paint is so. Yeah, I mean, so a, ch a chair from across the room is basically a silhouette. It doesn't represent a lot of big bold grain, you know, unless you're right up on it and the seat may have some figure or something. But to me, they always they always look better painted. Um, and I think back in the 18th century too, they painted furniture in bright colors so that it would lighten up the room you mm -hmm. know just like you said you wanted to paint your walls of your shop white i think that's that's excellent idea you know maybe i'll do that here but uh, i'm a i'm a black smith yeah so <laughs> so all the white just highlights everything that yeah I make. That's true. That's true. <laughs> so yeah contrasts yeah that's a good point though and, and you're in a natural wood shop and so yeah. a painted chair stands out more it does and it's it, to me they just they look great i mean you're looking at all those shapes and forms that you created, especially with your, the baluster turnings, the, the fancy turnings, as I call them. Um, those just, to me, when you have natural wood grain fighting with the shape of that leg, they, they fight each other and they don't really complement each other as well. So I think the painting comes out so much better. Um, you know, there's, there's, there's a time and place for wood grain, maybe like the front drawers on the riding armchair, the tablet top or something. Um, some chairs, uh, really contemporary versions of chairs with simple turnings might look good with some figure in the wood. But again, as a chair maker, I don't like to fight the figure in the, in the really crazy grain. I'm always looking for that nice, straight, boring, easy to work stuff. Yeah. And I, I know it's going to last a long time too, because it's super strong and have any reason to split or come apart on you. So. Looking around your shop and seeing a dozen different chairs, mm -hmm. each Windsor chair is different. And I would think that you would want to become more efficient and try to make them all as similar as possible and eliminate the variables. And yet you make each one with slightly different styles and little emphasis in different areas. Why? Why do you go through all that effort? Well, it's, it's funny that you would think that all these chairs are different, whereas in the, the deepest part of that seat is in the same spot, whether it's a perch or a riding armchair, a continuous arm, a sack back, they're all in the same spot. So the basic bare bones of a chair fit the average human anatomy in the same way. So the only thing that you see that looks different are the embellishments that aren't in contact with the human form for the most part. I mean, they make, yeah, there's handholds, things like that, but it's, you know, the rake and splay of the legs, there's a certain parameter you have to stay in so that the chair won't flip over backwards, you know, having enough rake or the splays, you know, so it won't flip over side to side. Um, you don't want the front legs to rake out too far because you'll trip over them when you get out of the chair. So there's, there's a certain set of parameters that you pretty much have to follow for every chair but there's just so many variances and things you can do to them to make them look different. Um, most of the chairs you uh, hear about are, are named from their backs, like a sack back. Um, the sack back has the little hoop. Well, uh, apparently back in the day, you know, uh, in England when the garden furniture, um, you know, uh, 
Windsor chairs were considered garden furniture, and so they would drape sacks over the back of the chair to prevent drafts coming through because the sitter might get cold or something. But uh, so that's where sack back came from. And then you got the continuous arm, which is the arm that's the back of the chair. You got the the hoop back, the loop back, the comb back. You know, there's it's, they're all named by their backs because basically um, the seat and the undercarriage are pretty much all the same. I've always said if you learn to build one chair, you can build them all. And it's, um, there's just different methods of joining, like, you know, the birdcage chair is, is a whole lot different on the back of it. But, uh, but for the most part, I don't know if I answered your question, but if the, uh, you know, just about every chair is um, the basic elements that are required for the sitter to be comfortable are pretty much the same. You know, there are some variances. Some chairs sit in a more reclined position. Some sit up at a desk, you know, sit you more up straighter to work at a desk or something. But pretty much every, every chair is 18 inches off the floor, and there's a certain rake and splay that you have to follow. If you splay them out too far, the legs will become weak. The chair will collapse. If they're not rake and splayed out enough, the chair can tip over. So, you know, there's just certain, certain parameters that you need to stay within especially when designing a new chair. Kind of like that following the grain thing. There's, there's a, you'll, you'll do well if you stay within the, yes. <laughs> stay within the parameters. Exactly, yep. <laughs> yeah, there's, there's unlimited ways to put these chairs together to make them look different. I don't know, it's, it, but it's hard to redesign a wheel, you know? I mean, yeah. it's hard to, just, hard to come up with something better. And, you know, I see, it, I see it occasionally and think, well, why didn't I think of that? But it's... Um, I, I don't mind making the classics, you know, they, they work and they, to me, they just, they give me a certain comfort, you know, not only sitting in them, but looking at them and they just, they just feel right. What's the history of the Windsor chair? I'm not a historian and I don't know exactly other than the fact that you hear stories about how maybe the King of England went to a, you know, a prisoner's house or something and fell in love with this chair that they saw and they... Uh, I guess from Windsor Castle or wherever, I don't know. I'm not exactly sure how it happened, but he apparently had a bunch of chairs made based on ones he saw, and that's kind of where it originated from. Um, you know, I, the, I think the, the Windsor chair really evolved when it came to America, especially with the continuous arm, which was developed out of New York. And, you know, somebody thought of taking a hoop back and just bringing the arms up and saying, hey, we can just make this continuous arm chair. And so that's like a, the perfect, to me, that's the perfect, you know, the chair that me and Jordan are sitting in right now um, is the perfect American design Windsor chair um, from, you know, that period of, you know, the late 1700s, early, you know, early 1800s. And um, I think it, it, it's still one of my favorite to make. It's probably the most comfortable. It makes a really good rocker. <laughs> what, what is a challenge that you continue to come up against with your students that you have to that you have to teach and 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 work around and teach them something different. I don't know if that makes any sense. Oh, it does. I mean, spindles are the hardest thing to teach. You would think a straight little stick or something so simple as a spindle is easy to shape with a draw knife, but it's it's the first thing we have to do on the first day, and you're subjecting them to a tool that they're not totally familiar with, like you know, a draw knife, and they have such freedom with this tool that they can easily go too far with it. And so you, you give them these dimensions, you know, like, oh, we need to be no less than 9 16 at the bottom and 7 16 at the top, and you typically add a 16th of a thousandth of an inch to, uh, to, to green wood for, to, for the draw dimension. But it's just that freedom they have, but they're still trying to get used to the skewing and slicing and shaping this wood and trying to figure out how to taper these spindles. And a lot of times I have them make extra spindles. And I think even in this next class, I'm gonna, I'm gonna beef them up another 16,000 just to give them a little more freedom, a little more room to make mistakes. But it's, I don't know what it is. I mean, like there's, there's a certain way we carve the seats. Um, there's a certain way we drill holes. There's you know a certain way we assemble the chairs. But the rough spindle making initially on day one 
is one of those areas that can go off the rails in a heartbeat. And you just have to stay focused and, and kind of watch what they're doing. And um, nobody's left here without a chair yet. So we're, <laughs> but it's always the biggest challenge um, is just that free form of the, the spindles in the back of the chair. Precision that has to be achieved by hand. Yeah, it's kind just, of, it's kind just of precision, balance. You yeah. know, you, you have to get the spindles small enough so that they dry in 36 hours in the kiln. Because um, we only have five days typically to build a chair in a class. Um, but you have to get them small enough to dry fast enough so you don't you want don't want to leave them too big, but you then you don't want to get them too small to where when they shrink, then they go below the diameter of the holes that we're going to drill, and then they have gaps in their chair, which happens all the time. you know there's there's many ways to fix all these little problems, and that's part of the learning process but you still want them to leave with a high quality chair and most of the time they do. I mean, you know, it's, it's, it's a, you know, with just four students, you have the ability to really focus on um, building, you know, really nice chairs. You know, they have, they have time to refine stuff during the process, you know, refine the seats and, and uh, you know, the last day there's no, there's not this mad rush to try to get 20 students and 20 glue ups going at the same time. So, with four students, you can pair them off in groups of two. They can kind of watch each other, and it's uh, it's really a pleasure to see how nice these chairs come out. You know, it's it's a lot of fun. Where could I go to find out more about your school? It sounds so enticing. Um, I'm typically just on Instagram. Um, you know, G Pennington Windsor Chairs um, on Instagram. I've got uh, the PenningtonWindsorChairs.com website, which has the list of classes on there. Uh, I'll typically have the next year's schedule, 2022, coming out in September on the website. And, I, and it'll be sold out in hours. Uh, yeah, hope, <laughs> yeah that's, that's, been, that's been a problem. I can't, but I mean, you know, there's four students, one class a month is typically what I do. And um, I've added a few classes here and there, but it's, that's pretty typical. Get signed up and stay Stay in touch in case there's a cancellation or something. Yes, yes. Uh, I have quite a, quite a waiting list, but um, I try to accommodate all I can. You know. If you'd like to help us in this venture, support Axe and Anvil on Patreon, where you'll also get early access and exclusive content. Follow our journey on our website, Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube at Axe and Anvil. Thank you.